Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey everybody, Patrick Connor here, and welcome to the Knuckles and Gloves podcast, or welcome back, if that's the case. We're going to be doing a little bit of boxing history today, which means, as you can see, I'm here with my boy, Eris Pina, who's a CompuBox operator, and just like myself, a lover of both boxing and fight history. What's up, bro? What's going on, man? This is uh, going to be a quick show, but a fun show that we're going to talk about, because it's the um, anniversary of one of my favorite fights. And I hit you up earlier today to bring it up. And you were like, yeah, man, let's let's do it. So today we're going to talk about um, the 25th anniversary of Pernell Whitaker, Dio Bellis Hurtado. You know, in it kind of, you know, and you want to think about it, a fight that's kind of it's it's remembered by people from, you know, fans from that era that obviously were and it wasn't that I mean, 25 years ago was a long time ago, but like it still seems I don't know, like, because considering it's still the 90s, like, I don't know, it's still, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago, even though it was. Does that make sense? Well, I, I feel like I, re- like we were saying before we started taping, dude, I feel like I remember so much about this time. Mm-hmm. Like it was yesterday, bro, but it, then... it was an exciting time to be a boxing fan, bro. It really for was, sure. especially for us who were obviously younger back then. I was 12 years old at this point, but I was still like, in the beginning phases of being a fan, like a hardcore fan. I became a hardcore fan around 1990, like in mid 95. And then that's when I started reading and reading every magazine I could find, buying all different books that my parents were buying for me, old magazines and watching everything I could watch. So I knew who everybody was at that point. By the beginning of 1997, I had a good grasp on the sport, at least I felt I did. And, you know, who was who and all that. And so I, you know, it, yeah, it's, it was just when it was a good era, man, the welterweight division was going through a golden era. Um, boxing in general had a lot of great talent, a lot of big fights. The 96 Olympics had just concluded the year before, which was going to bring in a whole new earth of uh, birth of talent for the next year, few years, including Floyd Mayweather. Like, you know, it was a lot going on and it was a good time. Yeah, dude, you had a uh right around this time or right, you know, right before this, uh, this fight that happened in early 97, Antonio Tarver, Fernando Vargas, Floyd Mayweather, you know, the, uh, David Reed, those fighters from that 96 team were about to either turn pro or had turned pro. I mean, yeah, man, that's, and now we're just now kind of finishing off a number of those fighters careers. Some of them finished off several years ago. Yeah. But, you know, Floyd Mayweather's still kind of kicking around and doing his thing, whatever that thing may he's, be. He's going to beat up some billionaire's kid, isn't he? Yeah, something. I don't, it's it's literally 100% someone I had never heard of before. I heard Neither have I. Them. Never heard of that in my life. But you know what? So it's that just point. goes to show you, bro. 25 years has, has passed since, uh, 25 years have passed since this fight that we're about to be talking about. And 
we're starting to, I guess, get up there in years too because we haven't heard of motherfuckers that, you know, so and so is fighting so and so. Who, you know, just because it's. I mean, we're at that age where we shouldn't know who these people are, right? Yeah, we're starting to kind of, that's starting to stretch beyond us, I think. Yeah, absolutely, man. I can't keep up with these TikTokers. But, anyways. Um, yeah, enough about how old we're getting. Yeah. Regardless. Exactly. We, regardless, think, of, regardless of us becoming old timers, um, the 90, the mid to late 90s was a golden era for the welterweight division. All right. That's, that's what we were getting to. Totally. And it hadn't quite hit that golden era yet, like, because at this point now, you had Pernell Whitaker, who was champion since around 1992 when he beat Buddy McGurk. I mean, Whitaker was the gold standard of boxing. He was probably still considered, if not Roy Jones, who might have surpassed him at this point. Um, probably did. Excuse me, actually. But they were, they were right there battling out for the top two positions of pound-for-pound pound best fighter in the world. Felix Trinidad was, you know, the WBA, excuse me, was um, IBF welterweight champion and making men, you know, noise on Showtime. And people were clamoring for a fight between Whitaker and, um, and Trinidad. And it looked like it was going to happen a couple of times. Remember that doubleheader that they had on HBO when Whitaker beat up Jake Rodriguez and Trinidad beat up Larry Barnes. But eventually that ended up falling apart because it's boxing. Of course it did. And then there was Ike Corte as well. Ike Corte, um, who hadn't at that point, I think, um, I don't remember when he made his HBO debut, whether it was 96 or 97 against Vince Phillips, but it was around that time. I'm going to say 97. But sounds right or, like well, it was around, it might have been 96 or 97 it could have been actually i think he turned i think he made his day de- his hbo debut on the undercard of a uh, whitaker rivera fight one of those but regardless corte was in the mix as well and add in jose luis um jose luis lopez who was about to come on the scene as well you you had a pretty good mix but the main key player was oscar de la hoya Oscar De La Hoya, former lightweight champion, biggest star in boxing, if he wasn't, you know, top to, uh, the top pound-for-pound fighter yet, was getting ready to move up to the welterweight division. And since Whitaker and Trinidad fell apart, this was the next big fight that they wanted to make. It was going to be the golden boy against Pernell Whitaker. And the fight was more or less all set. So they, as big fights usually has to go, uh, usually goes, um, goes, there's always like a tune-up intern fight right before the big one and stuff like that. At least it was much more like that back in the day. So Oscar De La Hoya went through his tune-up. It was a pretty heavy tune-up to think back when he fought former lightweight champion and then undefeated champ um, Miguel Angel Gonzalez, which was a junior welterweight title fight. Oscar hadn't moved up yet. And, you know, a couple of bruises here and there, but Oscar pretty much dominated from beginning to end and held up his end of the bargain. Whitaker, on the other hand, who out of the slowly now in the past year, 1996, started to show signs of slippage for the first time. Um, in his two fights with Jose Luis, um, excuse me, with um, Wilfredo Rivera, um, people thought he was on the downslide. You know, the first fight with Rivera, it was a lot closer than anyone had ever seen Whitaker really in a fight. And because of that, people started thinking that Whitaker must be done, like he must be cooked. A guy like Rivera in the early 90s wouldn't have been able to touch Whitaker, but by 96, 97, he gave him two pretty close fights. And the consensus thinking was, well, if Whitaker is going to be touched up by a guy like Rivera, what's Oscar going to do to him? But regardless, even with that being said, they thought his next fight, which was against a complete unknown at the time against a guy named Dio Bellas Hurtado, they kind of figured at that moment, well, even if Whitaker might be slipping a little bit, he has clearly enough to whip this guy easily and then move on to the super fight. 
but the reason why we're talking about it today is because that was definitely not the case. Sorry for the long-windedness. <laughs> no, dude, you set that up nicely, I think. Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of people remember this fight for the ending. I mean, and obviously, because the ending's pretty pretty shocking. But um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's. I think it's a good setup because it kind of provides some historical context to exactly why this fight was what it was and why it was kind of like the spotlight was on this fight. Oscar De is ringside knowing that a big fight with Pernell Whitaker, who had been struggling for a number of years to really get the credit. If I mean, it was almost kind of like, uh, um, I know that they're not the exact same kind of fighter. I know it's not the exact, exact same kind of situation, but similar to how for a number of years, Chocolatito Gonzalez was like, we knew about him. We, mm-hmm. we gave him credit. There was no problem but it took a long time for him to break through and get on to HBO to finally kind of get recognized by more slightly more mainstream uh, or at least more casual Absolutely. kind of boxing fans and stuff like not that. that I'm not even sure if he was clearly, you know, at his peak yet. I mean, mm-hmm. if he might've been slightly past his peak at that point. Exactly. And he, yeah. and that was the unfortunate thing is that, you know, we really didn't, we got to see a number of his fights on like pay-per-view undercards and stuff like that occasionally but not that often, not nearly often. Him, Mark Bronson was another perfect example that we exactly. That's a that's a good one too. Who like kind of later in his career started getting slightly better paydays and more opportunities. But Pernell Whitaker also was denied that kind of mainstream respect and the paydays and stuff like that. Even though he had gone on to pound for poundless and was clearly a really good fighter and recognized as possibly the best fighter on the planet, even despite a number of the drug issues and legal issues that he had consistently had in the 90s right leading into the later 90s and stuff like that so i mean uh this was a big opportunity because on the other hand oscar de la Hoya was the golden boy he was the olympic gold medalist and he was for a number of years whether it was in the boxing establishment but also locally he was considered like soft he was considered a guy that you know, he hadn't been tested. He had been coddled. He had been propped up, et cetera. Getting a lot smaller. You know, there was always the thing that he was a big lightweight fighting smaller. Exactly. And other guys or older fighters or older whatever. Fighters. And this was, and this was kind of looked at in that same light, except for at the very least, Pernell Whitaker wasn't that far removed from clearly being the best fighter on the planet or one of the best fighters on the planet, mm-hmm. one of the best two or three fighters on the planet. So, I mean, I think that Oscar De La Hoya looked at this opportunity as something like to legitimize himself in the eyes of a number of fans and pundits and stuff like that. Like if he, if he could beat Pernell Whitaker, then yeah. So he's sitting ringside. It's a big opportunity for Pernell Whitaker to shine too. And I think that something that it, it would have been obviously a lot more difficult in 1997 to do this research like in 1997 uh there wouldn't have been box rec you know like there wouldn't have been the easy references and stuff like that that we can make now and it would have been all like fight uh what is it fight rec or fights rec whatever the old one was or fight facts sorry fight facts yeah that's right fight facts they literally did that shit on a fax machine and so like if it wasn't on there you might not know about it or if you weren't able to contact some historian who happened to know or a writer who who interviewed and knew about it then you're going to have a difficult time finding a backstory, what they wouldn't have known, or at least what they wouldn't have known that much, you know, beyond just the name 
was that Dios Belis Hurtado was uh, trained and brought up at least, you know, as an amateur by Alcides Segarra, who is, or I think is, I don't believe he's is dead. I'm pretty sure he's still alive and I'm pretty sure he still works with the IABA in some uh, capacity, but he trained just a slew of great Cuban fighters, both amateur and fighters who later turned pro. I mean, literally just going down the list here, I'll be brief. It's, uh, you know, Rolando Garbay is one of the first ever Cuban national champions that uh, they had, period. And he trained Rolando Garbay. Um, let's see. Oh, obviously, Yoel Casamayor, Dios Belis Hurtado, Guillermo Rigondo, Jorge Luis Gonzalez, Juan Carlos Gomez, the Castillo brothers, Eliseo and Elisir. Um, yeah, Felix Savon. Teofilo I mean, Stevenson, this was like a who's who of Cuban literally who's who. pros of the 90s. Yeah. Old Lanier Solis, you know, it, a literal who's who of Cuban fighters in the amateur system and fighters who wound up fleeing too. In 1994, Hurtado uh, defects from Cuba. Yep. And so we're only three years uh, into his pro career and he's racked up 20 wins in three years. I mean, it's difficult to say if you don't know the fighter or haven't seen them or whatever, you don't really know what those 20 wins mean, but obviously he was very polished and very well schooled and yeah, perhaps they didn't know. Very, that going he in. was a very like, um, I'm not, I don't have his amateur credentials in front of me, but he was definitely a very accomplished amateur. And then as you said, he defected and with his first 20 wins, I mean, a lot of them are kind of like spotty wins and other guys just kind of like building experience, but he did have a couple of names on there um for instance antonio rivera the last fight he had before he fought pernell whitaker was a former champion well uh, even though it was a featherweight champion it was still you know a champion nonetheless from back in the day um <clears throat> excuse me anthony ivory is another guy who was a very experienced journeyman desi ford was another guy who had a name back in the day so he, he had a couple of names they weren't like big names or anything definitely not someone that would give you that would give you credentials to challenge a pernell whitaker for a championship or even get you ranked back then for that matter. But he wasn't just reason, some dude off the street. No, he definitely wasn't. And I remember as the thing about me as a kid, when I used to get excited about fights was that besides like the big names that everybody knew about, I watched them on television. If I read about a person in the magazine, whether it was ring KO world boxing, boxing insert, whatever year it was, all that type of stuff, whenever they featured a profile and like a new face or, you know, up and coming prospect, whatever it may be, I always remember that guy. And like you said, and there's no internet really, or all this other stuff going on. If I would, so I didn't know who was going to be fighting on TV half the time, but if I randomly would see them and see that that prospect I just read about was on TV, I'd get kind of excited because I'm like, Hey, wait a minute. I just read about this guy. He must be good. This is going to be cool. Like, you know, and Hurtado was one of those guys featured. He was featured along with, um, I believe he was a middleweight, his stable mate named Mario Irabon or something of that nature. Anyways, but I did read about Hurtado. He was featured in the Boxing Illustrated magazine as a few, as a new face and like a future up and comer. And at that point, he was only like 13 and 0 or something like that. But I kept, I, I remember his face because I remember the photo because it just looked kind of awkward. He was standing straight up, not really in a pose. I think he was wearing pink hand wraps in his Cuban trunks. And he just more or less looked kind of unimposing. But for what I, I just, I didn't, you know, I remember that photo and I kept the visual memory of it. So in the mid nineties, I'm sure you remember this too, when you're watching an HBO broadcast during between rounds, sometimes you would hear the sound, jur, 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 like the, like the intro for a song. And then they would show you upcoming HBO fights, you know, for the, for the different dates. 
blah, 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 this guy's going to, blah, blah, And then the one of them was Whitaker, Pernal Whitaker versus D Hurtado. And I went, wait a minute. I just read about that Hurtado guy. He's fighting Whitaker? Holy crap. Like, you know, me, 12-year-old me, I got kind of excited because, again, I just read about this guy. I'd never seen him fight, but he's going to fight Whitaker. This must be good. And then we found out again, bro, because, like, you can't take. And so leading up to this fight now, Whitaker's a 10-to-1 favorite. You know, this is more or less a tune-up for him. Um, I, we tried to find, if anything, if he was ranked. He found out he doesn't even look like he was ranked back then. So this was kind of just a, you know, a tune-up to get Whitaker one more fight um, in anticipation for Oscar. Like you said, Oscar was ringside. Everything was all set up. But that's when, you know, the unexpected went down. Look, another quick footnote about uh, Dio Belli's Hurtado, and I didn't really even know this type. I had to go look. I and it's on Boxrec. It's on his uh, his little profile, like among his amateur accomplishments or whatever. And um, so he was one of the Cuban national champions. And you don't become a Cuban national champion like by nothing. You generally have to beat a number of really good fighters to become a Cuban national champion. Can't remember what weight it was at. It was either lightweight or junior welterweight, something like that. But one of the fighters he beat, Mario Kindelon, back in, I'm pretty sure- Very, very, a, very accomplished amateur in himself. Very accomplished amateur. And back in, I'm pretty sure it was the 2004 Olympics. And that's another thing about a number of Cuban fighters that they participated in like several Olympic games. Um, you know, not, not just one or something like that and then turn pro, obviously, but- I believe it was the 2004 Olympics. Amir Khan was heavily favored. There was a lot of hype behind him being like the next Nassim Ahmed or something like that. That was a reference often made probably dumb because he only because he's Middle Eastern. But I guess there was some uh, similarity between the style potentially. He also had really fast hands. He could hit, et cetera. Long and story he, yeah, short. He was only around, what you said, like 17 at that point. Yeah, he was like 18 or something like that. He was, you know. Young. Yeah, he was. But he was the wonder young. kid. Yeah, there was a lot of hype around him. He was featured, unlike if you weren't enough. Um, besides the American team, which is obviously the ones that always get featured for television, he, there was a lot of hype around him and talking. Yeah, I re well, I remember. Uh, yeah, like specifically wanting to watch him and you know check him out after hearing some of the hype. And Mario Kindelon wound up defeating Amir Khan in the Olympics, and then they had this big to do where they had a rematch. I'm because sorry, that found out to be the most funniest, ridiculous thing that he had to avenge that. No. Like, of course, Kendall is going to lose that fight. That's like yeah, bad little Seeky going to a, um, fighting Mike McTeague on St. Patrick's Day. Like, you know, they weren't going to let Cotton lose that. I've never yeah, seen the fight. But I mean, yeah. <laughs> it was it was bad. But regardless, uh, and this was Mario Kendall on toward the end, you know, of his amateur career because he had been an amateur for a long time. But uh, nonetheless, point is, one of the fighters was uh, far more prime. One of the fighters that Hurtado had to defeat was a far more prime Mario Kindelon to become a Cuban national champion. And again, this isn't the kind of thing that they probably would they would have known. You know, going like anybody in main events or on Pernell Whitaker's team or even HBO, like they would have had some pretty hardcore HBO analysts doing this shit in 1997 to find this out. So matchmakers back then it would be Carl Moretti. Um, because he was a he was one main events back then, so it would have been Moretti and was Lou still with there? Was was Lou still there in 97 in early 97? Well, he would have been right. Lou was with HBO, so he was the 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 executive, you know, the one the guy that made the decisions on putting on the fights. So I'm sure like I'm sure they knew. 
Well, I'm not saying Lou. I'm not saying Lou's responsible. I'm just saying. No, you know, no. I'm just had to wondering, sign off like, yeah, I'm sure he signed off on it just because you know they. That's what they told. That's what they said the fight was going to be like. You know, he had signed off for worse at that during that era. Well, look at the Roy Jones fights he was doing. So, um, I would say though, it, it's just so odd to think that because, like, as we're about to get into. It's the, literally the last style you would want to put Whitaker in against, especially if you want to use it as a tune-up for a major fight. And, dude, I have to say, I don't remember. Like, I was saying to you, um, I hadn't seen this fight in a little bit. I had to go rewatch it. And I don't remember, I guess maybe I just don't remember the commentating from it. But one of the versions you'll go, if you, you go look for the fight you'll see the ESPN classic version of it which I don't think has the HBO commentating on it I think it has the you know the read oh, John Scully and something um, like that yeah. and uh but the actual HBO broadcast is also out there and I watched that one and dude there was some a couple epic comments and some pretty good moments from the commentating of this fight where they actually called some shit really spot on in terms of like the technique and the styles. And then there were also a couple of just like comments like from Foreman and Larry that I was like, what? Holy shit. That also just kind of, you know, brought me right back to that time in like the late nineties and early two thousands that were like, there were some epic, super epic moments and like fight calls on HBO, whether you liked these guys or not, because there were moments where I really fucking hated some of these guys or hated some of the things they said or how they acted or whatever, but there were some straight fucking epic commentating tracks, bro. I mean, it the fight in itself was just like, what the hell? It started in the very, very opening moments of the first round. If you watch it, you know what I mean? They came out there and out with it, like, Whitaker came out very nonchalant like he usually did. I mean, especially for this one. You can tell that. And he walked in, Hurtado, who no one had seen yet, like you mentioned, you know, unless he maybe he was featured on a local micro station or something. Yep, pop! Just catches Whitaker with a, with a quick shot. And Whitaker goes bouncing right, you know, and gets knocked right on his ass really quick. And everybody's kind of shocked by it, but Whitaker just laughs about it. Like, he's almost, yeah, and he gets up and he laughs. You know, he literally laughs. I remember that was the first thing. He's just kind of like, because... It was almost funny. Like, you know, it was seconds after the bell rang, he rang and all, but he had was, no idea. Hmm? I was just going to say it was like the first moment of the fight and it happened over and over again. Where looking back, it's almost like Purnell going, I know that trick. Like, yeah. fuck, this guy's out meing me. What the fuck? Like, and that was the first kind of moment, just like three seconds into the fight. Like, boop. And just it was got a him. Tough style, man. It was one like Hurtado was one of those guys that he's a runner but you wouldn't want to consider him like a guy that just stood on his bicycle the whole time he would stand and fight you it looked like he was slapping a little bit but he had pop in his punches because it was so sudden so quick that like he could catch you and that's what he was doing to Whitaker and Whitaker especially by the beginning of 1997 Whitaker was was not as quick on his feet as he used to be was he still elusive absolutely as he showed in the De La Hoya fight but he still you know do what he had to do to win like absolutely but he was never Mr. Aggressive to begin with. He was never a guy that just went in there and like, he always had someone else lead and then he kind of went off of that. And to be, first of all, an aggressor against a guy like Hortardo, who was clearly faster afoot than Whitaker was at that point and probably had quicker hands too than Whitaker, slightly quicker and just, and his overall, you know, young and just really, I hate to say Cuban style, but like 
he had that certain style that was just going to give anybody fits. And that's exactly what he was doing to Whitaker at that point. Like Whitaker was not expecting anything like this. And all of a sudden the fight that he didn't want to do was make a track meet or try to have to chase this guy down and really try to do things with him is what he was being forced to do. Hurtado was moving around, stopped really quick. Bah, 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 and then he would take off again. Bah, 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 bah. Like this is literally the worst style for any type of Whitaker. And this is what he has to deal with now. Um, right before one of the, possibly the biggest fight of his career, aside from the Chavez fight. And now you have Oscar De La Hoya ringside after like the first three, four rounds, who started to fidget a little bit, going, uh oh, like, you know, what am I watching here? And um, high drama started to take place. Yeah. Yeah. They, they start interviewing Oscar and he's like, yeah, he's over there. He's, he's doing, he's not doing real well. <laughs> it's like, you yeah, know, Oscar's want- sounding pretty nervous, dude. It's like, oh, shit. And dude, he's seeing all the dollar signs float away, and he's like, "Oh no, now I'm gonna have to fight Iportail <laughs> on these dudes." <laughs> dude, it's 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 pretty funny to to sit there and watch. But um, one of the things that's that's funny to also watch back is that Hurtado fought. I don't want to say like dirty, dirty, but he fought relatively dirty. I mean, he like got he, pumps taken off in the fight because yeah, of- he got two knockdowns and both knockdowns got evened out because he got points taken off although Whitaker also lost a point later on but it was like dude part another part of this equation was that (sighs) Mercanti Jr. dude just shat the bed like for the umpteenth time and would again over 25 years like I mean the guy just absolutely lost your friend in mind it's you know he's saying his stuff like come on let's act like men let's act like men gentlemen you know shit like that like what the fuck does that even mean bro just like tell them what you want them to do and what you don't want them to do you know and and then when they don't do it like then take a point or whatever but it was well, he's just an incompetent dude man like he's always he's always been a, yeah, dude uh, i don't want to just that he's lived off of his dad's name and he's gotten big gigs because of that as we know with other judges particularly one in texas um that's kind of had the same deal and so mm-hmm. yeah. um, <laughs> cool. so yeah. it happens but um yeah he Mercanti had a bad night um this was one of his war worst ones but it was I'll, an I'll awkward you, fight I'll, like before, I'll, before, I'll give him that you know that. like it was an awkward fight I gotta it was give an him awkward that. fight it, it just it was two but, styles that didn't really mesh but it made for like interesting drama but it was just it made it was a tough fight to it was a tough fight to officiate. Yeah, I agree, but he did not do it well either way. No, but some referees can handle that. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how rough or whatever it is, they still find a way to be able to hold control and do something, you know. And, yeah, and, dude. And Mills it, Lane would have pushed someone out of the ring. Yeah, Mills Lane, how he <laughs> took care of business. All right, now listen. The late Mitch Halpern was another one who was... Oh, yeah, Mitch was great. Business. Mitch was great. Richard Steele whether you like him or not for his stoppages, but he was a guy that can rein things in. You know, Arthur McCanty Jr. clearly was. But yeah. It was um, a that was a bad element of this fight for absolutely. sure. Absolutely. But it it was, you know, the fight, I yeah, I want I don't want to make it seem like, you know, Whitaker was getting out of box the entire fight. Like he was doing he was doing stuff too. Like a lot of body work that he's always been notoriously underrated for mm-hmm. was definitely yeah. worked. He was landing body work. He was still landing here there. Like I said, Furtado was quicker, but Leonard Whitaker was probably more accurate too because he was throwing on Whitaker. He's a boxing genius. He's still dialing in. He's just struggling and pissed off about it. But yeah. as he's going through, yeah. 
you know when you can tell things take a turn where Whitaker's just like, all right, bullshit's over, is when he gets dropped the second time. Because the first time he left, right, when he gets dropped, <laughs> he kind of giggles it off. The second time when he gets dropped, you hear him go, I, I haven't watched it in a while, but correct me if I'm wrong. He goes, no, and kind of like slaps himself, right? He, yeah, he gets up and he's just like, man, or something like that. Yeah, he's, just yeah, like, he's pissed off. He's, like, he's actually like annoyed by that. Now he's like, okay, I got to get down to business. Like enough yeah. is enough. Because it was solid. Like the first one was kind of like, shit, I wouldn't pay attention. Fuck. All yeah, right, you yeah. got me. And the second one was like, I was paying attention and you got me. Damn. And now I'm probably losing this fight. I've been dropped twice and I'm struggling. And now I'm you're making me look bad. Yeah. And like, I got to, you know. So well, and, and stylistically, dude, it was uh, part of the commentating where they were calling it correctly, in my opinion, was that uh, both you know, George and, uh, you know, Merchant were talking about the fact that basically Pernell Whitaker was the type of fighter overall. It wasn't that he was dumb. It wasn't that he was that limited. It was just that he didn't want to lead. Most counterpunchers don't want to lead. They, you know, they don't want to just naturally they're waiting exactly. for their opponent to do something. And then they're going to work off of that. But if they make you follow them, you know, if they make you have to lead yeah. and you're uncomfortable with that, you know, that's, that's tough. And on top of that, that natural southpaw advantage that or you know they say southpaw advantage i think that that's generally true it is. that that natural southpaw advantage that pernell whitaker would generally enjoy it. you know uh a guy like uh hurtado would have seen countless fucking southpaws in the human amateur system mm -hmm. that would have mm -hmm. been nothing to him like a an amateur or the the southpaw angles would have been like whatever he didn't give a shit but you know, making Purnell follow him round after round. And you could see that Purnell didn't want to do that shit. And he wasn't even like cutting the ring off correctly. Like he was like, it's just kind of following him around. With. I mean, Pat, can you actually like recall in other fights where obviously Whitaker has moved forward and you, we've seen him do things like that, but have you ever seen him like actively have to like chase someone around the ring because Hurtado was making him move. Nah, and it just didn't point, happen. It and, didn't happen. And when it, it did happen, happen, it was usually a fight where he could, he could actually have an effect if he landed punches. Exactly. Like it wasn't like no. he was chasing after him and really nothing happened. No, but, you know, it was like he had to follow him round after round and Hurtado was moving. Hurtado was, excuse me, was moving a lot. Yeah. And like Whitaker just was, he wasn't a guy that was able, was, you know, known for doing that. And at this point in his career, like we said, he was slightly slipped in, in terms, you know, for a little bit of everything. And he, um, it was just a fight that he was just like, holy shit. Like it wasn't going to be like, it wasn't going to be, it wasn't easy for him. This was like uncomfortable for him. He was annoyed by having to do all this and he was working harder than he thought. And like I said, Whitaker was a 10 to one favorite at this fight. Portado at that point was making it, was proving everybody just like what the hell and um it was you know Whitaker was making it close because you said there was point deductions there was other stuff and like the constant moving by Hurtado was not winning him any favors either whether it was with Larry um not Larry Merch with Harold Letterman or I guess with the judges particularly either but he was still ahead it was a close fight but he was still he was still ahead as we got to the late rounds and that's where things started to unfold even in like i think it was like the fifth or sixth round or something like that they said they said something about the punch stats and mm -hmm. they were like oh yeah whitaker's not doing that great he threw like 62 shots and landed 20 and i was like gee, gee he landed like 30 percent. that's pretty fucking good what yeah. are you talking about but that's the whole point was that he was having to chase him and the punches weren't really you know having the effect however 
finally Hurtado from a combination of moving the way he was from uh, having a high output and I think probably the body punches and Pernell was kind of wearing him down a little bit. I mean, it to a degree anyway, Hurtado started slowing down. He started breathing out of his mouth and he started getting caught, started kind of getting roughed up a little bit inside where, uh, and I don't know if he had ever, and I'm not sure, and he's never, obviously, at that point in his career, never had to fight a fight where he had to keep this such a high-level concentration pace and everything no for that amount of time where it, anyone would start getting really tired. It was almost like yeah. the Melger Taylor thing, not so much Well, not on that stage either, yeah. There's yeah. no way. It's just, you start unfolding, start unraveling, like a runner that's kind of hits the wall at the end. That's what Hurtado started happening to yeah, for sure. And actually, I thought that it looked like in the it, to start the 11th round, because like for a few rounds in a row, Whitaker looked like he was finally starting to kind of like gain on him a little bit like he wasn't winning, but at least not in my opinion, in Larry Merchant's opinion, <laughs> Whitaker was winning. But, um, you know, it, it didn't seem to me like he was winning, but he was finally starting to catch up. It was just like, dude, you got two rounds remaining and you're Pernell Whitaker. You don't have a whole lot of power. What the fuck are you going to do? And it looked like to begin the 11th round, Hurtado had picked it up and was like, all right, I need to get busy. He started actually snapping his jab out there, was, you know, doing a, uh, throwing a really nice right hand to the body, right hand to the chest. And then, yeah, dude, out of nowhere, out of nowhere, the old, like, I guess, yeah, I guess, you know, Hurtado wouldn't be considered like a pure puncher by any means, but that old, the, the puncher issue, dude, <laughs> that chin, yeah. you got the power, you can't have the chin, you know, Whitaker clips like him. Like you said, it was a combination of just kind of being exhausted at that point, um, just keeping that high level pace and the, and the punishment that he did. Whitaker was very ac- was very accurate with the shots he was landing and Hurtado got really in, you know, fell apart near the end there. But once that last onslaught started, even as a kid, I remember watching that and I was like cringing to myself, turning away because it was bad. It was bad. And that's where you swing back to Arthur Mercanti, who kind of just sat there with a deer in headlights staring at it going, well, Hurtado took what? 10, 11, 12 unanswered punt, like yeah. left hands in a row. It was literally just like chopping wood at that point. Just. Yeah, he wasn't even moving, like changing his angle technique. Anything. Oh, well, he whap, just whap, 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 whap until Hurtado was literally laying uh, on yeah, unconscious, eyes rolling around, sprawled out under the ropes. I mean, it's a vicious, vicious knockout. I was saying that I can't remember what month it was because I just, I, my memory is not like that, but it was, I'm pretty sure, 1990 that Razor Ruddock knocked out Michael Dokes and, nice and he night. got that that free shot right there at the end when Dokes is like uh, like suspended mm-hmm. against in the and then he post. hit him with the smash and he just fucking rah, you know with the fucking left hook and kills him and Mercanti is just like what's going on in there you know like and that shit was like what six seven years earlier than this man like I can't I just I mean I just can't believe I can't believe Hurtado is okay after that and goes to fight on s- several good fights. I mean, anyway, so, it was a bad knockout. That was a really, really bad and one. I rem- you have memories of this yourself, but the only memory I have because it's not like I wasn't a fan like that at, to the yeah. to that degree at this point. But I remember seeing that if it wasn't on Sports Center, it was something similar because it was like I remember seeing a replay of it and going like, "Oh my god! Oh my mm-hmm. god!" I mean, it's it's pretty shocking stuff. It's the kind of shit where, like, if somebody's not a boxing fan, don't show that to them. No, no, absolutely <laughs> not. Man. It's like a legal, it's just a bad assault. Like, just not even. It looks like fucking 
um how would you call it like attempted murder almost with like the untrained eye it was bad it's bad it's really really bad but my little my little experience with that whole show was that like so like i was telling you earlier before we got before we recorded um i was i was like a young fan but i was still big and you know i was still like becoming like a hardcore i was just watching everything we had a black box back then so i was <laughs> luckily able to watch whatever i wanted when hold, well yeah well hold on <laughs> quickly explain to people who might be slightly too young oh, to yeah, yeah. a black boxes absolutely so back in the start 90s, and end the show and, talk about um, how old we are and i get maybe the 80s too i don't know when they i don't know when they um became a thing but in the especially in the early 90s a black box was uh the illegal cable box that like you couldn't tell anybody about or else you want you know the rumor was you'd get arrested and everybody would get <laughs> told for you having it but it was a box that um a little small black box that's what they call it that little small cable box but it had literally every channel that you can imagine all of them, every single channel and all the pay-per-views that you wanted for free they were just like that all the movies you wanted showtime cinemax hbo even the um, Playboy and Spice channels, like everything was all out in the open. So like my parents got one when I was a kid. I don't know how they did it. Cause I don't, they got one way before I was even in the box. And like, I was young. They were one of the early ones to get one somehow. And um, cause I remember watching like old WWF pay-per-views with my cousins and shit, like talking like 1989, 1990 type. You know what I mean? So, but yeah, it was the black box. So I was able to watch all those type of shows back then. And I was sworn to secrecy by folks. Don't tell anybody we have a black box. You know, we can get in trouble for that. So that box served us from the early, from the late eighties, early nineties, all the way. I think the last pay-per-view my parent, my dad watched on it. Cause I was in college at that point was um, Oscar against uh, either Mosley or Oscar against um, Howard Hawkins. Damn. I think Oscar Hawkins. Oscar Hawkins was the last one. And then it broke and then it died and we, they've been gone ever since. But so that night I was, I was, um, I was getting ready to watch the fights. And my dad at that point, uh, he worked weekends. He wrote, he drove limousines. So some, you know, weekends he wasn't around. And if that was the case, then I had to watch the, I watched the fights by myself. My mom was downstairs. If she was downstairs, she would make sure that, she would pull reins that she wouldn't do when my dad was around, which was to make sure I wouldn't yell and scream. She didn't like any of that. So she, that night she wasn't feeling good. I remember this and she laid down and she said, don't you make a peep during the entire fight. She was like, I don't want to hear anything. If I hear you yell, I'm going to send you to bed. That went, okay. So first round, Whitaker gets dropped with the first punch. And I remember she's laying down. I went, yeah, I'm just like, yeah. And I'm looking at her and I'm going, and then throughout the fight, he gets dropped again. <laughs> and like doing all that stuff. And finally, and then the last round when he gets knocked out, and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> it took all of my energy. I was like turning blue at some points, not to like freak out because I was like, I used to freak out over everything back then, watching the fight over any little thing. So <laughs> that's why she probably told me to shut up. But yeah, man, it was regardless um after he finished it the most relieved person in the entire arena obviously was oscar de la hoya because that fight was still on from there <laughs> yeah no i mean that's and pernell salvaged that fight dude he salvaged the payday for himself um yeah. unfortunately he would go on to lose that fight a fight that many people and myself included thought he should have won but and you know what man for a fight that was interesting that everybody thought whitaker 
considering how he looked twice against Rivera and then against Hurtado, that a lot of people figure, you know what, Whitaker's washed. Oscar's going to blow him away. Like, he's going to be the first one to stop Whitaker. And none of that happened. Whitaker made Oscar look like shit in that yep. fight. Sure enough, style-wise, it was the opposite opposite issue, you know? And maybe, you know, it might have been I, – I say like this, too. It might have been interesting if Oscar had a different trainer for that fight now that I look back on it. Because I think he looked the best, in my opinion, when he was trained by, I would say, like Emmanuel Stewart. Uh, at least that was my favorite version of it. He came in there, just, you know, he had that cronk kind of like attack first, more everything, right? And he looked really good for the few fights he was with Stewart. Yeah. And for the fight with, with Whitaker, correct me if I'm wrong, he was with uh, professor, pro, uh, the professor, Jesus Rivero, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, and who and is totally like more defense and staying? Yeah, you know, he tried to he him. tried to box with him. Yes, and, and he instead of coming Twitter. in like with with Manny, he was definitely more like offensive with his jab and like you know yeah, more like yeah, uh, yeah. which was how Manny wanted his fighters like using the jab as a weapon, but keeping but also as like a good range finder and mm -hmm, like for mm -hmm. your other shots and that's kind of how he fought with Manny, but. That's the I, man. I mean, I'm not going to talk badly about Oscar too much because I think that he had a pretty damn good career, but that was kind of one of his Achilles heel type of issues was that he couldn't stick with uh, trainers. And whenever anything went wrong, he was quick to blame anybody else. Like almost the one trainer he trainers. always just kind of kept around was probably the worst one. What's that? That's in the one trainer he always kept around was probably the worst one in Alcazar. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Roberto Alcazar. Yeah well yeah yeah that's unfortunate dude but he had the career he had he had a pretty good career and but i mean whitaker also too the, the to add to the really quick he had the one thing that you know what i mean that like he never no one thought he was gonna have in his career and that was the last like you know late round career saving knockout yeah one, <laughs> like one no one ever thought that would hurrah. be heard on whitaker ever yeah <laughs> yeah one kind of like last hurrah because that wound up being his last his last title official win, win. title win was it his last official one? Well, because the Pastrayev, it got That's taken right. back. That's right. That did get taken back. Yeah, that was his last official one. Yeah. yeah. So unfortunately, and that and that sucks too because he would have closed out. You know, well, not totally closed out, but mostly closed out his career, having uh, fought. You know, basically a who's who in the last like six, seven fights of his career, the welterweight division, dude. You know, Pastrayev was ranked in like the know, like eight to ten or something like that. And he scheduled the fight at Corte after that. So, so I mean, dude, it was uh, yeah, it he would have fought literal a literal who's who of that welterweight division that we're talking about as a golden era and so scary as a as a washed former lightweight who wasn't very big and had no power, dude. Yeah. I mean, that's the greatness of Purnell, man. Rest. I mean, he really peace. did, bro. Look at that. Anyone else would have gotten knocked silly by Trinidad and never would have lasted the distance. Whitaker lasted the distance with, with a prime Tito with a broken jaw. With a broken yeah. jaw and broken well jaw. into a noted, you know, drug issue. Yeah, yeah. He was going through a lot of issues during that point in his career. And still at certain points, going through all of that, there was still hints at flat, you know, flashes of his, uh, of his greatness I forget which round it was, but there was clearly one. He came out there and he had Tito backing up. He's hitting him with jabs and everyone's just kind of like, oh shit. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Whitaker could still do it when he had to a little bit. Yeah. Beautiful fighter, man. One of my all-time favorites, as I know, is uh, one of yours as well. Just like some of the other guys we mentioned, like Mark Johnson's a really great one. Just did not get the acclaim that he should have gotten despite being an American fighter who had a great amateur career 
a really, really, really good pro career. And, and I mean, just a really undersold and understated, two undersold and understated black fighters, you know, that were from right around that same era. It sucks because you'd like to see them both get more credit. But in this it's, case, one last hurrah from, from Purnell, man. It kind of reminds me of something, uh, you know, how these guys don't get appreciated enough for they do you know by the bright fans but like but like you said the opportunities well the television all that other stuff it's something similar to what um teddy brenner was saying one time about uh the great light heavyweight harold johnson and harold johnson you know another great technician back then great boxer but a guy that wasn't featured especially in the golden age of television as much as you know a lot of other guys were and so when someone mentioned that to him and I'm, I don't remember the exact quote and I kind of wish I did, but like he said something to the effect of like the world doesn't, can't handle uh, perfection and Harold Johnson is perfection or something like that. Or well, yeah, the, something, something, something around, it was something around, you know, similar to that, but that's really how you kind of look at guys like Whitaker, Mark Johnson, others from back then, they were, they were so good and so well that it was just, I don't know. Yeah, underrated light heavyweight champion for sure. That was, and also just a, a scary looking guy for sure. Dude, too. Chisel from head to toe. Bro. That's you know. yeah, looked like a fucking bodybuilder. But yeah, um, I I think that it's it's just something where like it, this is kind of one of those areas where you know we'll bring it to a close in a moment. But this is one of those areas where people start talking about hipsters because it's almost like. You know, you you feel as though you have to be above the fray or above like the regular fan or something like that in order to understand the genius of Pernell Whitaker because you're like, oh, I'm watching this and I understand it, I get it, but he just wasn't appreciated in his time the way he should have. I can I can be one of those people, bro. When I was a kid, I didn't appreciate Whitaker. I like guys who knocked the hell out of each other. You know what I mean? Or like or good boxers who knocked you out, like Terry Norris. I mean, like not good. You know what I mean by that? Like guys who could box but would also try to knock your head off like norris that's the that's a better way totally so a guy like whitaker when i'm a kid and especially if he's going through a 12 round waltz with someone who can't touch him i'm kind of like man this sucks as an adult now that i really realize that no he wasn't a runner that i used to like think of him as as a kid or no he didn't do that like no he's whitaker was the most complete just i love watching him man like watching him is like listening to one of my favorite blue note records type thing like it's just you know there's so many layers and so many things you learn and nuances and everything with him it's a beautiful it's beautiful man he's art it's not it's what miles davis described he was like when you talk about like beautiful boxers really doing something that's actual art that's like the real science to it man ain't just two dudes knocking the shit out of each other whitaker made it art well, and I think one of the great things about boxing too is that it's that there's all of it. Like there are brawls and there's crazy ass fights with violence and gore and blood and shit, and there's art. And sometimes like they're oh, the same. Sometimes mm-hmm, they're mm-hmm. sometimes the brawls and shit is art, and sometimes the art turns into a brawl, whatever. But it's yeah, all man, all together makes that's, boxing. That's exactly all together makes it the most perfect sport, man, for ghouls like us. Yeah, for a bunch of fucking nerds like us. Well, the mention, well, the the hop to to harp on that really quick, like you just said, sometimes the brawls and everything else. Um, really briefly mentioned, then I guess it's an easy segue. The the other anniversary today was um, the one of the greatest heavyweight brawls of all time when Foreman Lyle. Yeah, uh, I was gonna say, uh, I was I was gonna try to find some segue for that, but that's a good segue yourself. 
Um, yeah. Dude, Foreman Lyle obviously is one of those fights where it's an easy fight to introduce like new fans to. Oh it's God. an easy yeah. fight to, you know, it's just, you don't have to explain a whole lot. Just throw that shit on and you can see it's two big guys fucking knocking shit at each other. And it's, it's, it's great in that regard. And I think another like kind of historical footnote in terms of like the importance of that fight is it's one of the fights that really signals that movement of fights out into Las Vegas and out into the desert uh, as an attraction. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it, it was in the 19, I believe it was the fifties. I'm pretty sure it was Basilio Robinson, either one or two. I can't, I'd have to look, but um, I, one of those fights uh, wound up in Vegas and that was one of the first like Vegas attractions and it Robinson, kind of unfolded former, from there. One of the Robins, I think it was maybe what the third third fight or yeah I'd, I'd have to look I don't Vegas remember for sure. yeah. so absolutely and I and I think that one of the other fights that happened out there was like Gene Fulmer Gene Fulmer Don Jordan I think was another fight that happened out there but regardless it was those were that was in the 50s and that was back when it kind of first started and then it wasn't until a good 15 or so years later with Foreman Lyle that this attraction in Vegas really sparked kind of like, oh, shit, we can do this out here. Because remember, right before this era happened was the the Caracas caper. You know, they had the they were doing shit in Kuala Lumpur there. I mean, dude, they were going all the fuck over for whatever big fights for the site fees because these uh, far fung places were willing to just throw money. money at these fucking promotions. That's why he became the actual world champion because he was traveling right. all these different countries. Yeah, they're willing to throw money at these promotions in order to like get their name out there as like an attraction or mm -hmm. a place to go to. And it was easy know? for Ali. He had no problem saying, you want me to go play in Indonesia against a guy named Rudy Lubbers? Yeah, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, for however many million, I'll fly out yeah. to some joint and fight some guy. Fine, no problem. I mean, yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you know, bringing bringing kind of channeling the fights back to a place like Vegas was big. It was a massive move that still, you know, we still feel that today. And you know, Caesar's Palace, bro, that's such an iconic venue in general. You know what I mean? Like it, it really is. It's my all-time favorite venue. Whether it's but that the Pavilion, you know that like you like you're alluding to that was the host once that became picked up that was like the main place it wasn't msg it wasn't you know other parts of the country like vegas was the main 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 place until yeah Donald you brought Trump. up teddy brenner but like right around this time was was when that transition started really dying out because yeah, madison square yeah. garden was in madison square garden during the seven for instance i'll give you a perfect example like you would just talk about heavyweight boxing madison square garden in the 70s um they did not. The only times they got a heavyweight title fight, they had Ali Frazier won. And then they had Ali, um, and then they had Ali, uh, uh, excuse me, Ernie Shavers. They got Ali Frazier too, but that wasn't a title fight. Then they got Ali, Ernie Shavers. Yankee Stadium got Ali Norton three. And then in 1979, they got Holmes, um, Mike Weaver. That was it. Other than that, the only person that was defending the heavyweight championship at, at, at Madison Square Garden was either superstar Billy Graham or Howdy Doody Bob Backlund. All right. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, that wasn't MSG was basically shut out. Plus, New York was like falling apart at that point. It was not a place you wanted to be around. But the pavilion in Vegas, bro, Caesar's Palace, that was just like that backdrop awning. You know, the whole kind of looked like you were in like a big shed barn type deal. And the, the fights that took place in there, man, the names, Leonard, Duran, Hagler, Hearns, um, Holmes, Ali, like they, that was so many 
so many iconic fights and then Foreman and Lyle, well, like you said, it was just like this one where it took place there and Howard Cosell going horse ringside and everyone losing it. And then you had like this whole, like um, basically a back and forth between fans who thought it was just a stupid slugfest. And they were just like, this is what you call heavyweight boxing. That's the worst thing I've ever seen. If this is the future of heavyweights, we're in trouble. And other people who absolutely loved it and said this was the greatest thing I'd ever seen. Like, people thought it was great, but there was other people who thought these were the sloppiest dudes ever. Joe Lewis thought, he was like, I've never seen anybody so uncongested and awful like this. Like, you know, it was, but it's interesting now, thinking of now how, I'll, you know, almost 50 years later, what is it then, like 45 years or so, um, how people have, like, changed it. And from the saying, it was just, like, it's become one of the greatest. It's, like, the catalyst for saying, or for saying it's, like, the greatest heavyweight non-title fight in history probably and it's the gold standard the, when you mentioned the when you mentioned heavyweight brawls Foreman lyle is probably the first exactly one yeah you want to talk about like brawls slugfest whatever you know that's that's i mean yeah clearly it's one of the best heavyweight brawls or whatever and ever so i mean you have multiple knockdowns both guys hurt multiple times both guys clearly out of energy by the time you know, the fight, the fifth found, mm -hmm. sorry, the fifth round rolls around. Like both guys are like done basically. And I mean, yeah, there's, that's part of what makes it good, but needless to say, that's not what you, if you're in the corner of either of these guys and looking toward their future, that's not what you want to see. You don't want to see George Foreman totally losing his shit and absolutely fucking baked you know, by round five against Ron Lyle, who was a very hard hitter, but not a super skilled guy, had, you know, a troubled background and pulled himself up. Great story, but not necessarily somebody thought of as a, as like you, you need to get by Ron Lyle and you need to get, get by Ron Lyle easier if you're going to get back to a title shot. And that's kind of, you know, the thought here, the thought process. And so that's and not a good look. But no, it was no, no. a great fight. An amazing fight. And a fight that basically kind of, you know, ruined Ron Lyle. Like, Lyle still had success after that. Don't get me wrong. He was still looked upon as a contender until the, until the um, end of the 70s. But if you look at his record as well, after that, he, he struggled. You know what I mean? Um, he fought Jimmy Young in a rematch, which Young had his numbers. So, I mean, there's no shame in that. Young had a lot of guys' numbers back then. He was awkward as hell. But he also fought dudes like Stan Ward. Stan Ward was a lower level contender from the late 70s and a good fighter, but a guy who just knew, you know, like we mentioned before, when we were talking about um, Tom, um, Bill Sharkey, they had a certain level, you know what I mean? And if you were going to, if you were a top contender like Ron Lyle, you should be able to whoop him easy. Lyle struggled hard with Stan Ward, fought Joe Bugner in a very boring fight that he struggled in too. And soon after that, uh, same thing in a fight with Scott Ledoux. And that's when he was after that knocked out by Lynn Ball and subsequently knocked out by Jerry Cooney soon after. And I wonder if Foreman didn't retire soon after um, the fight with Lyle, do you think he would have had a similar fate too? Because he wasn't looking like a million bucks in, you know, in those fights afterwards. Yeah. Funny footnote, I guess, since I'll, you know, just try to name yeah. drop my book that's over my shoulder here over the mic. Uh, Oscar Bonavena actually mentioned he went out to this fight. He went out to Foreman Lyle and was there ringside and they asked him. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't even know that. Yeah. They asked him afterwards. Some reporter asked him afterward, 
uh, because he went to the post-fight press conference and was heckling them, saying they look like amateurs and they look like shit, which is pretty funny coming from Bonavena, who was, wasn't the most polished fighter himself. But, like, you know, I, I thought that shit was pretty funny. But, nah, dude, it's clear that um, I think... I don't know how much you want to believe George Foreman. A lot of people have kind of said that some of the stuff he's, he says about himself is somewhat contrived. I'm not trying to talk shit. I'm just saying that this is what others have said about him and that he kind of talks himself up and reinvents his own story. But <laughs> that being said, right around this time, he says that he knew he was in trouble and that his career was kind of sliding downhill and that he was not in a, any sort of position to, you know, I mean, he, he did the Foreman fights five shit, which was an absolute, you know, it was an absolute shit fest. And, that, you know, Ali's heckling him the entire time. I mean, I mean I'm, that's an incredibly funny video, too. He's it's yelling, he's telling, he's telling all of his opponents, lay on the ropes, he'll get tired. <laughs> yeah, dude, it's, it's like awful. It's like, uh, it's, I mean, it's like, it's like watching pro wrestling. It's kind of that, that yeah. atmosphere. Absolutely. Because it's like, it's everything seems like informal. He's like laying around. He's like going draping over the ropes. Ali's talking shit to him the entire time. He's fucking, you know, fighting from ringside and shit like that. But then the, I think the point is that like even Foreman seemed to know at that point, like he was, you know, his career was seemed to be dwindling. I don't know whether or not he really thought he can get it back, but dude, the, yeah, it was going downhill. And he seemed like he knew it. I mean, if he had got by the the Jimmy Young fight, because Jimmy Young even said that Foreman had only Foreman touched him a couple more times in a round that he was out in, that that would have been kaput for him. Um, what was that? Was in '77. I mean, to think if he could have got an Ali rematch, at that point, it's not out of the realm to say that he could have beat Ali in a rematch if he had like paced himself better and maybe just won a decision because Ali was at that point where could have could have happened, right? Totally, but, yeah. You know, after that, then Larry Holmes was coming on the scene. And I think, in my opinion, 1978 Holmes, 79 Holmes definitely would have beat Foreman. Well, yeah. And, and at that point, Foreman would have like the like they would have crossed, you know, it would have been too much. Yeah. Like after after that, Holmes would have gotten a little bit too good or a little bit too cognizant and Foreman would have been too slow. You exactly. know, it just wouldn't have it wouldn't have made sense. So he there would might have been a small window where Foreman could have captured something in the late 70s but that would have been it dude yeah absolutely and then so it probably worked out best for Foreman to retire the way he did and then came back and you know had that improbable comeback and everything but yeah for for Lyle it definitely that that fight it would have taken anything out of anybody man it was such a brutal vicious fight and to get the head even though you had success against George Foreman more success than basically anyone else ever aside from Muhammad Ali in terms of actually hurting that beast um, you know, it's, it still took the remaining, like, you know, juice out of him too. That was bad, bro. Like that's, again, that's the one that's held to every standard. The first time he mentioned Ron Lau, oh man, the George Foreman fight. Oh, 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 but like, and no one's ever going to forget that. That shit is just crazy. So yeah, it was worth the man. I had to be mentioned, but we've also been like talking a ton about, um, heavyweights and those particular eras lately too. So <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, we, it was it was nice to get a good break with the wealth. Absolutely for sure. Cool. Well, uh, dude, I appreciate you taking a little trip back in history with me to do a little. Oh, this was a blast, thing. man! I had so much fun talking about this in my childhood, man. Anytime I could talk about my childhood, sure. and I can reminisce about shit like that, I'm I'm gonna be hyped about. Because what do we say? We're we're old as dirt now. 
yeah man we're getting there man. <laughs> we're getting there no dude i appreciate it. it was a it was a good time and i appreciate everybody who who listens in or watches whatever the case may be if you did watch on uh youtube for instance i, I would appreciate it if you go ahead and like the video and also if you subscribe to the channel it's very helpful but if you listen uh whatever podcast app you listen in subscribe there as well give us a rating also helpful eris if you're gonna you know find this fine gentleman here for instance on twitter find him at punch zone eris on twitter find me patrick connor at patrick m connor but we're also on facebook instagram those nice things if you want to try to find us there and yeah man that's about it eris we'll talk soon bro have a good one everyone take it easy everybody Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.